Okay, well, welcome back, everyone. Uh, this is the, uh, the, I guess, the last formal session, and uh, after this, uh, we should have some time for, for a Q&A before I need to whisk myself away and uh, catch a, a plane home. Uh, so uh, this uh, last, the last of my sessions, this is session number four, uh, is about uh, gender identity, as I mentioned earlier. But before I make a start, let me just, I want to thank Dan for his session, just really helpful to me, very good material complementing what I've been saying. The Lord, I just love how in the Lord's providence, you know, we don't plan exactly what we're going to say, but nonetheless, it really connects in a way that the, the parts are, uh, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. But anyway, uh, so to introduce this topic, 2015 uh, was a big year for the LGBT movement. I mentioned earlier, June 26th of that year marked the Obergefell decision from the Supreme Court. Well, that same month, June 2015, was when Vanity Fair released its July 2015 issue with this now notorious cover. Uh, and I have to say, every, every time I see it, it, yeah, it, it disturbs me. Um, but there it is, it's notorious, and, uh, and it was a sort of a, a, a landmark event in, in the development of the transgender movement. Uh, Bruce Jenner had already come out as transgender, claimed to be transgender earlier that year in April, uh, but this was the, the, the reveal, the big reveal of Caitlin, call me Caitlin. Um, now transgenderism had certainly been a cultural issue before 2015, but it seems that after Obergefell, uh, the floodgates opened and it seemed to gain new momentum. It was almost as though the T of the LGBT had said, okay, step aside, it's my turn now. Well, the cultural and political dimensions have certainly affected the church. The church has not been shielded from this by any means. Um, but again, it's the, it's the pastoral dimensions that perhaps prove most challenging. They're certainly just as important to understand and grapple with. Just to give you one example, in 2008, in the Christian Research Journal, you may be aware of Christian Research Journal, a sort of, um, uh, Christian Apologetics and Cultural Analysis uh, periodical. There was an article by Joe Dallas. Joe Dallas uh, uh, was a, a former, formerly gay man who was converted and uh, has a ministry in dealing with sexual uh, sin and dysfunction and counseling and so forth. And he, he uh, wrote an article about a time when someone came to him for counseling, um, uh, Kim by the name, and he says that as Kim arrived, he says Kim was uh, one of the most handsome men that he'd ever seen. And uh, he asked Kim to have a seat and to uh, start filling out a, a personal form that they give to new counselees. And he writes this, My new counselee signed the form, fixed a steady gaze on me, and dropped the bomb. Uh, he, the, Kim had been asked what the problem was that brought him to this uh, meeting. And this was Kim's response. The problem is my chromosomes. I was born female. And Joe Dallas says he was astonished. After two decades of counseling porn addicts, homosexuals, prostitutes, and a, an occasional sex offender, he says, I don't shock easily, but he was shocked. Uh, and, the, and Kim continued, I've lived most of my life as a man, and it's worked. I finally had sex change surgery three years ago, 
and I've been living with a woman since then, but two weeks ago, I got saved at a harvest crusade. I'm a new Christian, so now what? Now what indeed? Well, I'm going to take the same approach to this uh, topic of gender identities as I did earlier with sexual orientation, starting with some definitions, try and nail down some terms, get some clarity, uh, cover some basic facts uh, about the, the landscape here, uh, look briefly at how the naturalist and postmodernist views approach this issue, and then contrast this with the biblical view, again, taking a triperspectival approach. So same, same sort of approach here. Uh, so starting with definitions, and again, I want to repeat that we, we should always be a little sus suspicious about definitions, particularly in these, these controverted areas. Definitions are never neutral. They often carry certain values built into them, certain prejudices. So we just be, need, need to be aware of that. But I'm going to try and define terms in a way that we ourselves could, could at least recognize them and apply them in meaningful ways. Let me start with a really basic category, ontological sex. Ontological sex. Don't get put off by that term. <coughs> ontological. It just means what you are by nature, okay? what you essentially are. We can define ontological sex as a person, a human person's basic sexual identity as either male or female. In other words, when you complete a form and it's got an option M or F, which box you check, that's your ontological sex. Are you male or are you female? Check the box. That's fundamentally your sexual identity. But we can distinguish that from biological sex. Biological sex is, you, are you male or female according to your physiology, according to your chromosomes? Are you XX for female or XY for male? And internal, external physiology. In other words, what, what reproductive organs do you have? What is your physiology, a male physiology or a female? This is sometimes known as birth sex. Again, this is a more recent thing, and that birth sex idea itself is, a, is prejudicial, as if, as if it could potentially change in the course of your life. Um, biological sex has traditionally been viewed as the primary indicator of ontological sex. In other words, if you want to know if someone's male or female, you look at their body. You look at them. Do, do, they, do they have a biologically male body or a biologically female body? That gets to who the person is. But we still need to distinguish this from ontological sex for the simple reason that we are more than our bodies. All right? That we have a biological sex, but that's not all there is to say about our sexuality. Uh, there's something deeper. It, it, we have a soul as well as a body, and it's that soul-body composite that defines us as male or female. Then we have the term gender. Now, gender traditionally was a grammatical term. You know, your, was your noun? Is it uh, male, female, or neuter? So we talked about gender in gra grammar. But it also has a sociological definition, which would be something like this. Gender is the psychological, social, and cultural manifestation of maleness or, and, or femaleness. Uh, how do you express yourself in a particular social context, cultural context. Sometimes we use the terms masculinity and femininity. So gender would be masculine or feminine. And gender goes beyond biological sex. For example, motherhood is more than just being the biological female parent of a child. It's not less than that, but to be a mother is more than just to be the female organism that gave birth to another organism. Okay? So motherhood goes beyond, there are characteristics, and we were thinking about fatherhood this morning, 
fatherhood is much more than just being the, 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 bio, the, the organism that provided the sperm in this procreative act. There's more to it than that. That's what we would call gender. Some aspects of gender are culture relative. You know, you can go to certain cultures and men present themselves in one way, uh, different from another culture. But I would also argue that there are transcultural aspects of gender as well, certain universal gender norms, and that's really part of a biblical picture of things. Then we have this term gender identity, gender identity, which again is a relatively recent term. And again, it's, it's, a, it's a loaded term. I'm not comfortable with the term itself, gender identity, because it's, it's already got an ideology built into it. This is your identity. This defines who you are. However, for the purposes of discussing this topic, we need a definition. So here's, uh, a, I think, a definition that's fairly widely accepted. Gender identity is how one perceives and experiences oneself as male or female. If I was defining this term, I would call it something like gender self-perception, because, of course, how one perceives oneself might not actually be how they are. People can be deceived in their self-perception. But that, this is the idea. How do you perceive yourself? How do you experience yourself? To put it in very simple terms, do you feel male or do you feel female? Do you feel like a man or feel like a woman? That's, that's the heart of the idea of gender identity. Now, with these definitions before us, uh, we can move on to define another term, gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is a psychological condition defined this way. It is the typically distressing experience of incongruence between one's biological sex and one's gender identity. So you need to already have a definition of biological sex and gender identity in order to define this condition known as gender dysphoria. And uh, usually this, this incongruence, this seeming uh, mismatch between biological sex and gender identity is, is distressing, but it can be uh, it can vary in degree. So some people experience this in a mild way, in a moderate way, and there can be very severe uh, cases of gender dysphoria as well. Now it's worth noting that the terminology has changed. Some of you may be familiar with uh, a book known as the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders. Those who study counseling at seminary sometimes hear about this, this book. Uh, it's the sort of standard reference work for uh, mental disorders and it defines various things like narcissism and bulimia and so forth. Well, in the fifth edition, there was a shift in definition or shift in terminology from gender identity disorder to gender dysphoria. And the reason was that they introduced the idea of distress. The point being that if, if, if you have this gender identity mismatch and it's not distressing, then there's, nothing, there's not a problem. It's only if this is distressing to you, the argument went, that now it's a, a mental disorder that needs to be treated. So simply for someone's gender identity to not match their biological sex, there's nothing wrong with that. That was the implication as the terms were redefined. But this is the terminology that's now used. Then we have transgender. Transgender uh, is a broad umbrella term used to describe a person who experiences or expresses a gender identity other than his or her biological sex. So the person who says, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. I've got a man's body. I was born a man, but I'm actually a woman. That's how I identify myself. That would be someone who would be described as transgender. And then a related term, transsexual, 
which again I gather is, is starting to drop out of usage now. It was the more common term until recently. Transsexual can be defined as a person who is living as a member of the opposite sex where opposite is defined with respect to their biological sex. So someone who's a biological male who's living as a woman would be transsexual and vice versa. And a transsexual uh, might have had hormone treatments, might have had surgical alterations, not necessarily. Not all transsexuals would have gone that far, but usually they're going to pursue those sort of treatments. And then one last term that we need to mention here is intersex. Intersex refers again to, it's a medical term referring to the condition of having mixed or ambiguous sexual organs. Uh, Formerly, this was known as hermaphroditism. Again, that's a term that's been dropped because it's deemed to be offensive. But um, the idea is that you have someone who has ambiguous. You can't tell from their physiology. They're not completely a man. They're not completely a woman. They might have some mixture or, or just ambiguous uh, sexual organs, genitalia. And it's very important to recognize that intersex is not transgender. These are completely different categories. Uh, intersex is a genuine physiological condition. It's a, it's a bodily abnormality, usually caused by some genetic abnormality, whereas transgender people have normal bodies. There's nothing, nothing abnormal about their physiology. What's abnormal is the way they think about it, the way they feel about it. But intersex has been used as a wedge issue for this transgender movement because the argument is well, because of these intersex people, gender isn't binary. Gender, there are, so there are in-between genders. And that is used then as an argument to validate the whole gender identity, and gender queer, uh, gender fluid um, ideology. So I mention that so that we're just aware to avoid the, the confusions that are often foisted upon us. Again, it's interesting to see how these terms have developed over time. Again, I, I put some terms into Google's Ngram viewer to see how these uh, terms have increased in usage. And I included uh, sexual orientation, so you can compare that. That's from earlier, the blue line there. Um, here, this is a sort of purple or pink line, gender identity. Okay, And then you've got transsexual is the green, it comes down here. And then right at the bottom, notice this, orange, transgender, transgender. So all of these no origins in the 1960s. It's the sexual revolution where, where all the norms and boundaries start to get torn down and these new categories are invented. And uh, gender identity, there's some talk about that. Transsexual is a more common term. And it's only since 1990. It's only since 1990 that the transgender term... I mean, it seems to us it's, it's always been around. People are talking about it as if it's always been around. But it's relatively recently this terminology has been used. Let me introduce you to the gender unicorn. How many have seen the gender unicorn before? Okay, some of you. I won't spend too much time on this, but this is meant to be a teaching tool to help people understand about um, uh, the difference between gender and sexuality. So this is definitely not a, not a Christian way of thinking. This is um, by the LGBT you know, institutions. Um, I'm not sure exactly what... I can't even read the text where this came from, but... Um, early, an earlier manifestation of this was the genderbred man. Uh, the genderbred man was supposed to teach you about this, but they had to drop that because it turned out that the genderbred man was a man. So then it was the genderbred person, and then they decided, well, let's just replace it with a fictional animal, which, if you think about it, is kind of apt that they used a, you know, a unicorn 
to, to, to describe these categories. But you've got these different... Oh, sorry, let me go back here. Um, no, 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 back, back, back. There. So um, you've got these different categories. Gender identity is here. It's basically in your head. It's your mind. How you think about yourself, male, female, or other genders. Gender expression is the outward expression of your gender, whether you're acting, living as feminine or masculine or whatever. Then you've got this sex assigned at birth, which of course is a euphemism for biological sex. Um, and notice how they link that to chromosomes. So even there, there's a disparity. Your chromosomes are an objective fact. No one, no one didn't assign them to your birth, <laughs> well, except God. But um, you know, th there's even a, a fudge right here in the way this is described. And then you've got physical attraction and emotional attraction. These are the categories of gay, lesbian, hetero, straight, and so forth. So this is, this is how we're supposed to understand the new world, the brave new world of human sexuality and gender. But what are the actual facts here? Again, caveat, facts are disputed, facts are subject to interpretation. But here are some, I think, fairly well-established um, statistics and conclusions about this whole field that are widely accepted. First, about 0.6% of US adults identify with a gender other than their biological sex. In other words, about 0.6 would identify as transgender by the standard definition of that term. However, the number of people who have, um, who are diagnosed, clinically diagnosed with gender dysphoria is much lower. Uh, according to one estimate, and estimates do wi vary widely, fewer than one in 10,000 adult males are diagnosed with gender dysphoria, fewer than one in 30,000 uh, females so diagnosed. What is the cause of gender dysphoria? No one knows. No one knows. There's much debate over it, but there is no scientific consensus on what, if anything, determines one's gender, identify, uh, gender identity or causes the condition of gender dysphoria. So the causes of gender dysphoria are unknown. It's a recognized condition, but uh, there are various theories about brain structures, brain chemistry, and so forth, but um, uh, nothing solid. Here's another fact that is widely accepted by the, 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 the medical uh, profession, although it's glossed over, prepubescent gender confusion resolves naturally over time in a majority of cases. That is, most adolescents who experience gender confusion, if left to simply mature sexually, then the gender confusion usually resolves by itself over time. Now, a proportion of those will go on to express homosexual attraction. That, that's also a fact. But in, in these child cases of gender dysphoria, most of them resolve naturally if they are left alone. One other very important statistic. People who identify as transgender have a higher risk of mental health problems. And it's much debated the connection between the two. Do they have mental health problems because they are transgender and maybe they're ostracized by society, or is it the other way around, that transgenderism is actually a manifestation of an underlying mental health problem, but there's no question that there is a correlation. These people often suffer anxiety, depression, suicidal tendencies, and the rates of suicide among transgender people, people with gender dysphoria, is much, much above the average of the population. 
Well, let's uh, think a bit about how this connects with worldviews. Again, it's important to look at the bigger picture. How do different worldviews in our culture affect how people think about gender identity? Before we turn to a biblical perspective, I think it will be useful to just consider how these two dominant worldviews uh, of naturalism and postmodernism influence people's thinking about this. Your view of gender identity is going to arise out of your basic anthropology, which is going to be in turn situated within a broader worldview. So beginning with naturalism, remember naturalism is the view that nature is all there is, everything reduces to physics and chemistry, we are basically just physical, biological organisms. How will gender identity be understood by a naturalist? Gender identity will be seen as a psychological phenomenon rooted in the physical brain. It's a psychological, it's a way of thinking about things, it's a perception. Uh, but it is rooted in the brain. It has to be explicable in terms of brain science. So gender identity for the naturalist is probably due to some physical or chemical aspects of the brain, brain structure or brain chemistry. So there's a lot of effort to try and genderize brains. People argue that there's a male kind of brain and a female kind of brain, and sometimes these get mixed up, and that's, that's what's happening in these, these cases. Gender identity is probably not a personal choice for the naturalist. They're going to tend towards the born-this-way view because it's, your brain is something that develops. You don't choose what kind of brain you have. It just, uh, it just determines uh, how you're going to feel, how your gender is going to be expressed. So for the naturalist, transgenderism is just one facet of human biological diversity. It's like uh, skin color, it's like eye color, your gender identity is just natural variation between biological organisms and therefore it's morally neutral. But what would be the moral status of transgenderism or transsexualism, living as a person of a gender other than your biological sex? Again, it's going to depend on the naturalist's uh, moral theory, their view of morality. If they're a nihilist, well, anything goes. No objective moral norm, so there's nothing right or wrong about transgenderism or anything else for that matter. The subjectivist will say it's right if you personally prefer it. So if, if, if you're inclined to prefer a trans, transgender way of life, then that's going to be right for you. That's going to be your moral value. And the utilitarian will argue that it's right if it brings more happiness than unhappiness. On the whole, if we can maximize human pleasure by allowing people to express their gender identity and maybe to take action to modify their body to fit the way that they perceive their gender, then that's all good. Happiness is the highest goal. What about treatment, though? Well, the naturalist is typically going to say that gender dysphoria is best treated with sex assignment, sex reassignment. That is, if there's a mismatch between gender identity and physical uh, manifestation, then change the body. There's typically two reasons for that. First, a naturalist is going to identify personal identity with the brain. Your brain is what really defines you. You are most associated with your brain. Your body is sort of secondary to that. But also, it's easier to manipulate the body than it is to manipulate the brain. Brain science is very complicated. Okay? Changing the brain is hard. Changing, doing surgery on other parts of the body is easier to bring things into line if that's what is desired. Fix the body is the, is the view. What about postmodernism? Well, for the postmodernist, gender is not a, a biological orientation or a physical manifestation. It is a social construction, a social construction that isn't grounded in any uh, scientific, biological, or natural manifestation. Okay? Gender is a creation, human creation, a way that we 
think about ourselves. So gender identity for the postmodernist is going to be a matter of self-perception and self-definition. You, your gender identity is something that you project upon yourself. You see yourself a certain way, and that defines you. So on this way of thinking, gender identity is not going to be a personal... Uh, sorry, it is going to be a personal choice. The postmodernist will tend to reject the born this way. Your gender identity isn't a given. It's something that you choose for yourself. It's something that you embrace. It's something that you even create for yourself. Furthermore, since postmodernism typically wants to reject all natural categories and external constraints, the postmodernists will claim that gender binarism, that is the idea that there are two genders, basically two genders, male and female, that's intolerant, it's oppressive, it's something that society came up with, there's no objective reason why we have to accept that, it's not an absolute and it needs to be challenged. What about the moral status of transgenderism and transsexualism on the postmodernist view? Well, again, nothing objectively normative here. For the postmodernist, there are no objective gender norms that we have to follow. There's no external standard of gender that human beings have to conform to because we create our own values. But there's still going to be some sort of moral uh, duty here, moral requirement, and it's again this, the tolerance rule. We should be tolerant and affirming of gender diversity, just as we're to be tolerant of sexual diversity, gay, straight, and so forth. Likewise, we must be tolerant and affirming of gender diversity, because no one gets to set the rules. We get to set our own rules, and each of us has to accept one another's judgments. And when it comes to dealing with this problem of gender dysphoria, someone feels like a woman trapped in a man's body, or vice versa, Typically, again, the postmodernist is going to say the solution is to fix the body, to, to engage in sex reassignment, hormone therapy, surgery, whatever it takes to bring the body in line with the mind. And the main reason for this is that for the postmodernist, gender identity is in your mind. That's what defines you. The body is just external. What's really you, your gender identity is the real you. Your body is just something that's along for the ride, as it were. Uh, and so it's the body that needs to be brought into line with the self-perception, self-definition, the gender identity. So really it has the same outcome as uh, for the naturalist. Well, let's now turn to think uh, about uh, a Christian perspective, a biblical Christian perspective on this issue. And again, I want to take this tri-perspectival approach. I think it's helpful to look at it from these three angles of the normative perspective, the situational perspective, and the existential perspective. First asking what are the objective norms or rules or standards that we apply to this issue, what are the objective facts, natural facts, the creation order that are relevant to the issue with the situational perspective, and then the subjective internal factors that we need to take into account. So let's look at each of these in turn and see what, uh, what a biblical worldview would, would tell us about this issue of gender identity. Starting with the normative perspective, and here there's going to be a little bit of repetition, and I don't apologize for that because much of what we covered earlier reapplies to this case as well. We can start with creation ordinances. There is a natural order built into the creation itself. There's a moral order with regard to God's design for human beings, human sexuality, human relationships, and so forth. And one of the most important foundational creation ordinances is that of marriage and procreation. And so 
Recall we talked about Genesis 1, 27 and 28. The image of God is reflected in male and female. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Note again this very close connection between the image of God and this basic gender binary of male and female. A basic sexual binary is simply, simply assumed here, it's asserted. We don't see any distinction between gender and sex here. That's, that's a rather artificial distinction to bring to the text. Male and female are both sex and gender in this, in this theological context. And then we have the creation of the woman. I made, uh, explained earlier how the, the terminology here, a helper fit for him or corresponding to him, points us to male-female complementarity. This is part of a divine design to manifest the image of God in complementary sexual identities, male and female, as part of divine design. And again, we have the ordinance of marriage. Note again, the parents are a father and a mother. A father and a mother. A basic gender binary, if you want to call it that, is simply assumed, is presupposed by this parental relationship and the sexual union of one flesh. Again, complementary male and female meant to go together. As I noted before, there's a sense in which we could just stop here. Everything really we need to know about a biblical view of sex and gender is is set out for us in Genesis 1 and 2. Anything other than that is really just clarifying and reinforcing what is laid down in these creation ordinances. But turning to the Ten Commandments as well, a number of these commandments are relevant to how we think about gender and uh, relationships between male and female. The first commandment, again, is really foundational here. You shall have no other gods before me. How is this relevant to gender identity? Because again, this commandment is a repudiation of human autonomy. Human autonomy is the religion of secularism. That is the secular religion today. It's human autonomy. We are our own judges. We are our own authority. We set our own rules. But that is not the biblical view. There is a higher authority, God himself. And so to make ourselves the judges is a repudiation of God. It's a form of idolatry. And just as sexual identity and sexual expression have become modern idols, so with the idea of gender identity and gender expression. If someone wants to express themselves in that way, then who are we, who is anyone, to say otherwise? It's a rejection of the authority of God. The fifth commandment, again, honor your father and your mother. Uh, Not only does this presuppose the basic, again, gender binary of father and mother, male and female, it also presupposes parental authority and leadership in the family and the parental responsibilities to oversee and care for one's children. Why is this relevant? Well, it's very relevant to how parents should deal with gender confusion in their children. What we're being told today is that if your child tells you, if if your son tells you he's really a girl, you need to honor that. You need to accept his interpretation of himself and you need to do whatever is necessary for him to express, or her, I suppose we're told to say, to express themselves. That is a reversal of the parent-child relationship. The parent has authority over the child. And even if the child is rebelling against that, we have a duty of care. And so uh, these recommendations that, well, if your child starts saying this, he needs puberty blockers, he needs various kinds of treatment to to, to, to uh, get, get him aligned in the right way. No, that is harmful. 
That is a repudiation of the basic parental responsibility. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder. How is that relevant? Well, because what the sixth commandment requires us to do is to treasure, preserve, and promote human life. And that means not just keeping people alive, but protecting them from harm, from physical, bodily harm. The sixth commandment requires us to preserve and protect human life. And it's actually encapsulated in, in the first principle of medical treatment, uh, which was really an absolute until recently. First, do no harm. Isn't that part of the Hippocratic Oath? First, do no harm. Well, how that has been turned around, when actually the first line of treatment now is to physically mutilate. Um, uh, uh, mutilate. That's the word I'm looking for. Mutilate the body through surgical procedures, actually doing harm to a healthy body. Sex, sex reassignment treatments are arguably a violation of the sixth commandment, going against what is healthy for a body. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Again, we noted how this presupposes the covenant of marriage, but again, it presupposes a basic binary gender distinctions that are laid out in Genesis 1 and 2. These are foundational assumptions. And one more I think is relevant, the ninth commandment. The ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. The ninth commandment de demands that we be truthful, that we reflect ourselves in an accurate way. The way that we present ourselves to the world must be truthful, must represent things as they really are. And I think this is relevant because I would argue transgenderism is a kind of deception. It's kind of a charade where a person presents themselves to the world as something that, objectively speaking, they are not. Some other biblical texts, let me run through these quite quickly because I know time is limited. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, part of the Mosaic Law. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Uh, rather than giving you my commentary on this, let me give you uh, let me quote from a, um, an Old Testament scholar, one of my colleagues at the seminary, John Currid. John Currid has written some excellent commentaries on, on actually the, all five books of the Pentateuch. But this is what he comments on this verse. Transvestism in all its forms is clearly prohibited in this verse. Two primary reasons have been suggested for this prohibition. First, it denies the natural order of things that God has set up. Male and female are to have distinctive natures. They are not to be mixed or blurred by one gender appropriating the characteristics of the other gender. Secondly, cross-dressing may be associated with foreign religious practices and therefore is to be shunned. The fact that, a pagan, that the pagan peoples were notorious for such practices is supported by a Babylonian proverb which tells of an Amorite saying to his wife, you be the man, I will be the woman. When I read that, I thought, how very modern. A very modern uh, couple, uh, the, you know, an enlightened, sexually liberated couple. The man says, why don't you be the man and I'll be the woman? Good. Nothing new under the sun. Even the pagans were practicing that in Moses' day. And then, uh, I don't need to dwell on this one, but Romans 1 again, uh, this account of rebellion against the created order, people behaving in ways that are contrary to nature. It presupposes that there's a natural order of things, particularly in sexual relations. Men should do what men are designed to do. Women should do what women are designed to do. One other text I just need to briefly mention, because you may have heard it introduced in these discussions. 
And that's um, Matthew 19:12. comes after Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage. And Jesus says this, which is somewhat cryptic. There's been a lot of debate about it. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Some progressive commentators have argued that this actually allows for uh, a non-binary category, that eunuchs were a sort of third category, neither male nor female. And that, so Jesus' teaching here actually supports a kind of uh, denial of the, the traditional gender binary. Now, there has been much scholarly debate over exactly whom Jesus is referring to with these three categories. But one thing is clear among commentators who, who understand the historical and cultural context. No one in Jesus' day would have thought that a eunuch was anything other than male. An impotent male, yes, but nonetheless a male. No one thought that eunuchs were neither male nor female. They would have been understood as male, males who had been castrated or hadn't had proper... Uh, development of their sexual organs, but they were males. So don't be, my point is, don't be fooled when someone tries to pull this verse out. Moving to the situational perspective, uh, considering our situation within the creation, the natural order of things. Again, we can just point to the natural order of creation itself. Nature itself testifies to the basic gender or sex binary in the human species. Put bluntly, if there were no gender binary, the human species would not exist, right? We would have died out. If there were not male and female designed to go with one another to, to do what men and women do, the human species would not exist. We would have died out. So the natural order itself uh, testifies, natural revelation testifies to this, this male-female uh, ordering of sexuality in humanity. But then, of course, we have to take into account again the fallenness of creation. Our doctrine of the fall also gives us insights into what is going on in the world around us and why people are thinking the way they do. Remember, I made this point earlier, natural does not imply normative. In a fallen world, what is natural, what occurs naturally, may be a disrupted nature. It may be a dysfunctional nature rather than the way things should be. So again, just because someone claims, I was born this way, doesn't mean that that's normal, that's right, that's proper, that's how things should be. And our doctrine of the fall also should teach us to be skeptical about human experiences. Human experiences should not be treated as normative. Just because someone says, I feel X, doesn't mean that X must be the case. Just because someone says, this is how I feel, this is my experience, doesn't mean that that is how reality is. Our, in a fallen world, our experiences have to be judged in the light of divine revelation because our experiences can be deceptive, our experiences can be fallible, whereas God's word is not. It's also worth talking a little bit about the scientific evidence that we have available to us at this point in time. I noted earlier that the causes of gender dysphoria are currently unknown. There's a lot of debate. Everything's up in, in the air. No one knows where things are going to come down. However, the evidence indicates that it is a real condition. Some Christians, I think, doubt that gender dysphoria is even real. I don't think we need to go that far. It is a genuine psychological condition. There are people who are gender confused, and this isn't something that they've chosen. Okay? They didn't, you, you can't necessarily say to someone, well, you, you committed some sin or you did something, that's why you're this way. 
most of the time, people, this, this is a condition that people find themselves with. They didn't bring it upon themselves. They didn't wish it upon themselves. And that calls for compassion and grace towards them. There's no scientific evidence, however, that sex reassignment treatment is an effective solution. Of course, that's what's more and more being recommended and being pushed. But the reality is that sex reassignment treatment is far from risk-free and harm-free. I don't have time to go into the details, but you can look it up for yourselves. There's all kinds of risks, all kinds of complications. And we really shouldn't be surprised because what we, what we mustn't lose sight of is that so-called sex reassignment treatment involves the surgical alteration of an otherwise healthy body. In other words, you're taking a body that is healthy itself and you are, you are uh, mutilating it. Thank you. There's the word again. Mutilating it surgically, cutting it, reshaping it, when there's nothing biologically wrong with it. What's wrong is the, way, is the perception about the body. The body itself is not what needs to be fixed. The same goes for the increasing use of puberty blocking or puberty retarding uh, drugs. When children express gender confusion, the recommendation is more and more, well, let's slow down their puberty. Now, ask yourself, is it, if you had to guess whether slowing down the process of puberty was going to be a good thing or a bad thing on the whole, what would you guess? You don't need to be a doctor to realize that retarding a natural, normal process is going to have ramifications. It's going to have risks. And the reality is no one knows what the long-term effects are of using these drugs. And yet, well, one book I read recently said, basically, what's going on right now is ex child experimentation. Child experimentation. Untested drugs being used on real children to see what happens. We should be aware of what's going on. And then the existential perspective. The existential perspective. Looking internally at matters of the heart, of attitudes, desires, and so forth, looking internally to the subjective aspect of this issue. Um, first, the, the idea of gender identity itself. How should we, as Christians, think about this concept of gender identity? Should we, should we accept it? Should we use it as a lens to think through these issues? Well, I've already noted that gender identity itself is not a well-defined scientific or psychological concept. There isn't a consensus on what it is, what causes it. Um, a recent BBC program was uh, pushing the line that there are over 100 different genders. And then when someone was questioned about this, they couldn't name more than about four. You know, um, How do you know this? It's completely arbitrary. People are making things up as they go along. So uh, we're, in, we're in uncharted territory, even in the secular world. But scripture certainly assumes, takes for granted, that gender is tied to biological sex. That's how things should be. Your gender expression should be in line with your biological sex. That is how things are meant to be. Scripture doesn't recognize a natural distinction between one's gender identity and one's biological sex. Now, in a fallen world, it shouldn't really surprise us to find that some people have a dysfunctional relationship between the mind and the body. It happens in other areas, not just sexuality. So in a fallen world, it's quite possible for someone's internal impressions of their sexuality not to match up with their actual physiology. Um, but, as scripture tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things. The heart is deceitful above all things. And so... We shouldn't look for people's feelings about themselves to be the final authority in how they actually are, what, what, what gender or sexuality we should assign to them. 
And then we have what I would call the idolatry of identity itself, the idolatry of identity. This existential perspective draws our attention to issues of self-identity, but as Christians we need to ask ourselves, where does our identity come from? What truly defines us? What truly makes us who we are? Where should we locate our identity? I see two related errors behind the LGBTQ ideology that we are hearing about today. The first error is the idea that we should locate our identity in our gender or our sexuality or some combination of the two. The elevation of gender and sexuality to be the core of someone's identity is certainly a very serious error. But there's a deeper error here, and it's the idea that we ourselves define our identity. It's the, it's the sin of human autonomy, rejecting the idea that it is God who defines us rather than we defining ourselves. So that's the second error that is the, the more foundational one. The biblical view is that God defines us, and we should accept God's definition of us, and we find our true identity in him. And as Christians, we find our true identity in Christ, when we are in Christ. That doesn't mean that our sexuality, our gender, everything else about us doesn't matter. Of course it matters, it's part of who we are, but it's not the core. It's not fundamentally who makes us who we are, gives us our identity. Well, let me wrap up here, maybe five minutes is all I need here, with some practical implications. What do we, what do we draw from this? Uh, how should we respond to the challenge of gender confusion? First, there are the cultural issues. We should strongly resist the push to undermine biblical sex and gender norms. Again, it may feel as though there's nothing we can do, but that doesn't mean that we give up. We must continue to speak out, must continue to promote a biblical view. As Al Mola has put it, we cannot be silent. We cannot be silent. This is, this is precisely the wrong time to shut up. So that's one thing that we need to do. And we should be aware of movements within the church to dilute biblical teachings. Some of these are quite subtle. They seem to only tinker with the edges and asking us, well, just to allow a little bit of flexibility around the edges. But many of these, I believe, are Trojan horses that are going to introduce the entire ideology into the church. Once the, once the nose of the camel is in the tent, it won't be long before the entire camel is in there. We need to be on our guard. We need to protect the flock. I'm not saying that all of these are done deceptively and maliciously, but the reality is that there are people in the church, church leaders, who are confused, who have been influenced by unbiblical worldviews, and with all sincerity, they are thinking that the church needs to, to change its views on this. But we need to be aware, and we need to stand firm. Our motivations, again, gospel truth, public good, and religious freedom. These are all concerns that we should have for ourselves and for our churches. We, at the end of the day, we need freedom to preach the gospel, not just to preach biblical sexuality, but to preach the gospel but it's all or nothing. You can't have one without the other. And these, this new gender ideology, the reality is it is harmful. This isn't, this isn't a trivial matter. It's destructive to individuals. It's destructive to families. It's destructive to society. society and, and things are only going to go downhill from here. Pastoral issues, however, thinking about how we shepherd our, our flocks in light of these issues. Again, we should help our congregations to understand and apply a biblical worldview. I know I've been banging on about that a lot. I just see it as deeply important to give people foundational teaching about a Christian worldview to help them see the world as the way they're supposed to see it 
and to be aware of these unbiblical worldviews that influence people's thinking. We should give our congregations clear and accurate teaching about gender norms. Again, not just what we believe, but why we believe it. Where all this comes from in scripture, how it all fits together. On a very practical level, I think we should be careful to avoid reinforcing unhelpful gender stereotypes. That is, there's definitely such a thing as masculinity and femininity. There's a biblical, biblical masculinity and a biblical femininity. But there's also certain cultural stereotypes that aren't biblically mandated. So if you have a boy who's not into sports, does that, is that a feminine thing? Is he gender confused? We have to be careful about imposing cultural norms that actually exacerbate people's concerns, make them feel that they're out of place when they in fact shouldn't. So we've got to distinguish between biblical norms of gender and cultural norms where, you know, we all know about the people used to talk about the tomboy, you know, the girl who, who liked to do sort of boyish things. Nowadays, oh, she's really, she's really a man in a woman's body or she's really a lesbian. No, we used to talk about it, we just call them tomboys. There's nothing abnormal about that. So we've got to be careful about how we, how we present these gender um, norms. We should recognize, too, that gender confusion is often associated with mental health issues. Usually it's bound up with other issues to do with anxiety, depression, perhaps childhood abuse. Um, just be aware that often gender confusion is the presenting issue, but there may be other things going on un un underneath. And also, people who suffer from gender confusion often have suicidal tendencies, so we have to especially watch out for them and, and, and help protect them against themselves. Uh, in many cases. And then lastly, again, as I made the point before, we want to cultivate a church environment in which people can share their struggles. If there were a man in your congregation who for years has struggled with the sense that he's in the wrong body, that he's really a woman as a man, could he comfortably come to you and talk to you about that and share that? Or is that something he feels that he's, he can never admit to, that he can never, never open up about? Again, if people don't find a safe space in the church to be honest about these struggles and find grace, compassion, and support, they'll find it elsewhere. They'll find it outside the church. 